From NPR News in New York, this is the Bryant Park Project. Overlooking historic Bryant Park in Midtown Manhattan, live from NPR Studios, this is the Bryant Park Project from NPR News. News, information, funny politics. I'm Mike Peskett. Wednesday, July 16th, and we will on the show be talking about what happens when funny man Al Franken, I love that, I love that title, funny man Al Franken, tries to seriously run for the Senate. And of course, politics, the intersection of politics and humor uh, in the news recently with this Obama cover on the New York, uh, the New Yorker magazine. Everyone is either taking offense or not or trying to explain why it's funny. Also, one of the most popular stories on the New York Times is this. Want Obama in a punchline? First, find a joke. It's about how the late night comedians are having trouble making jokes about Obama, especially because there's just not one go to bit of easy funniness. And that's one of the underlying things the article kind of hints at but doesn't quite say. Most of the late night comedians just need the easy, easy joke. So Bill Kitt, Bill Clinton, bit of a tomcat. John McCain turns out he's old. And uh, George Bush, not a smart guy. Those are the jokes that keep on giving. What about Obama, a man who contains multitudes? Well, you know, they, the, New York, the New York Times article tried to say that Jon Stewart's not making much hay. But he is. I watch The Daily Show every night. The audience isn't necessarily going along with him. But kudos to Jon Stewart. He played a clip of George Bush the other day saying something silly about dependency on foreign oil. And then he says, oh, thank God we have whole bold new thinking. And then he went to a clip of Obama saying the exact same thing. So I love that. It's not the easy joke, right? It's not something funny about the guy's ears. It's actually about his policies. One of the reasons why The Daily Show is just, you know, it's a treasure. Humor, humor literally. I always wanted to do a show called Dissecting the Butterfly. That's a quote from, I think it was E.B. White in The New Yorker. He says, if you under, you can understand comedy, but dissecting comedy is like dissecting a butterfly. You learn something, but you kill it in the process. So, as I said, funny man Al Franken is making a serious play for the Senate in Minnesota. So is it fair for his opponents to use his comedy against him? Fair? Who said anything about fair? Also, poker, it's man versus machine. Machine one. And a brand new track from the BPP jukebox. We will get today's headlines in just a minute. But first... Former Minnesota Governor Jesse Ventura says he is not running for the Senate, and this clears the way for a heated race between Republican incumbent Norm Coleman and TV funny man Al Franken. Politicians are all about exploiting each other's weaknesses, and with Franken's comedy routines, Coleman has a lot to work with. But how far can Coleman go in dredging up old comedic gems like Franken's Playboy article called Pornorama before Coleman starts looking like the bad guy? Right now, it's working. Josh Green is senior editor of The Atlantic. He wrote about Franken in May in an article entitled, He's Not Joking. Hey, Josh, thanks for being with us. Good to be with you. In the race so far, have they begun using Franken's comedy against him? Yeah, you know, you you could argue it's become the biggest issue in the race. I mean, one of the first things that happened after Franken, you know, won his party's nomination in June is that the GOP and the Coleman campaign immediately started 
um, you know, becoming outraged every day by some new bit of, you know, some new comedy routine that they kind of took out of context or, or kind of threw out there. You know, some of them fairly adult, fairly explicit themes, and, and right away that became a big issue in the race. Well, it's not even so much if they take it out of context. They just kill the comedy whenever they complain about it, don't they? Comedy's a fragile thing, and in the hands of Norm Coleman, it doesn't sound funny. No, I mean, it's a fragile thing in politics altogether because, you know, c- politicians are more or less ter- terrified of comedy. And in order for a joke to be funny, you know, it's probably got to offend a few people. And, you know, the hot thing in politics this season at every level seems to be, you know, pretending to be offended and take umbrage at just about everything under the sun. And so, so in a way, Franken has kind of walked smack into the middle of that because, you know, as a result of his comedy career, there are just all sorts of things that Coleman can poke through and, you know, decide that, you know, that this requires some kind of a hysterical press release or an attack or a, another line about how Al Franken doesn't represent family values, that whole sort of thing. And that really has been the, the defining dynamic in the campaign, at least up until now. And they really have kind of been doing ops research on his, uh, his professional oeuvre. That's what they've been doing. I mean, what you do in any campaign at that level is you hire a bunch of people on your own staff to go pour through the public record. Uh, you know, anything that's out there about your opponent from newspaper clippings, quotes, congressional votes, divorce records, any of that kind of stuff to find out, you know, what is in this guy's background that I can use against him in a race? Well, for Al Franken, you know, there, there's a long and colorful career in comedy um, that, that has some pretty explicit, outrageous jokes, you know, a lot of which have been aired by the Coleman campaign. Um, you know, and made into a political issue. So, you know, normally you're not looking through, you know, 30-year comedy career, but in this case, if that's who your opponent is, you know, that's what the GOP researchers, uh, you know, are going to do. And and a lot of that stuff now is starting to come out. There's this notorious interview with with Playboy magazine where he joked about rape. There was a joke about how if he ran for president, he'd have to give up adultery. And the sort of thing that, you know, the concerned women of America and groups like that exist uh, you know, to get all red in the face about it and jump up and down and, and get angry on talk radio. Well, we have one of those jokes. Here is Al Franken in a Saturday Night Live appearance in 1987 on Weekend Update with Dennis Miller. Al Franken, why don't you run for president? Well, I'd like to be president. I think I'd be a great one, perhaps one of the greatest in our nation's history. But I don't want to submit myself to the intrusive scrutiny characteristic of today's presidential politics. For example, I'd have to give up adultery. So that shouldn't hurt him at all because, to my, to my knowledge, he's not been an adulterer, has he? No. In fact, he married his high school sweetheart. He's still married to her, Franny. She's a major figure in the campaign. Their daughter has moved back home to help do education outreach. I mean, you'd have to be willingly brain dead to, to, to sort of take that joke seriously. You would have to be stupid and brain dead to take that joke and try to make hay out of it, and perhaps they will. But there are some jokes, and listen, this is what the guy did for 30 years. So if you were running against a businessman, you'd look at his business. If you were running against an elected official, you'd look at the laws he passed. And there is a strain, his critics say there is a strain to his humor that is not all things offensive equally, but is sexist, is specifically sexist. What about that? Well, you know, if you take any group of jokes out of context, you know, you can paint them out to be anti-family, anti-woman, you know, all, all, all the sorts of charges that are that are flying. Um, I've never personally found Frank's comedy to be sexist. You know, it's it's satirical. It, it makes fun of, of New Age culture with Stuart Smalley. 
he you know he he likes to kind of shake people up he doesn't take himself very seriously um you know all sorts of things that work on Saturday Night Live that don't necessarily translate that well, you know, into your opponent's 30-second TV ad. But, you know, the idea that, you know, he's somehow dangerous or sexist or something like that, I think is 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 more than a little silly. I think I think the problem is that a lot of these jokes can be taken out of context, like the Playboy joke, and, uh, you know, drummed home through GOP talking points and through surrogates and, you know, kind of forced into the news cycle and made into an issue in the campaign. And the more Franken has to react or explain his jokes, you know, the less he gets to talk about Norm Coleman, about George Bush, about why he ought to be elected to the U.S. Senate. Are there, I mean, he must be feeling this is so ridiculous. I just have to say the same thing every time. I can't believe I'm being asked to say, you know, I have this sound soundbite essentially on repeat, and the soundbite goes like this: "It's a joke. the The victims of my comedy aren't, you know, women or aren't isn't uh, isn't Leslie Stahl. The jokes are the people who would, you know, think bad things about women or Leslie Stahl. So does he do anything to defend himself other than kind of go on cruise control and say it's a joke? Well, that's the hard part about politics and about switching from comedy to politics. You have to do that kind of drudgery and repeat those kind of sound bites. When I was out in Minnesota hanging around with him for this piece, we were out on the campaign trail. We, we, we stopped for raspberry pie one day and got to talking about exactly this question. And he sort of said in, in the Frank and deadpan, he's like, you know, the Republicans have this machine. It's called a dehumorizer machine. They feed my jokes in one end and out the other. You know, and he just sort of broke up and started laughing. But that is a fairly accurate description of of the Republicans' political strategy against Franken this time around, is to kind of, you know, take these jokes, remove the humorous context, and, you know, jump up and down and and get upset about it. Has this affected how he campaigns? Yeah, it has very much, I think. I mean, he's running as a serious candidate for Senate. This isn't like Jesse Ventura 10 years ago where the guy's kind of doing it on an ironic lark and people think it's funny and they go out and vote for him. You know, Franken has spent more than a year now out kind of beating the hustings, going to, you know, bean feed spaghetti dinners, every small town in Minnesota talking about health care, talking about the Iraq war. Yes, he's a comedian, but but he's not running as a comedian. He's he's making a concerted effort. He has made a concerted effort, uh, you know, to run as a serious Democratic candidate. Um the, the frustrating thing, I think, for him is that, you know, you can, see a, you can see a mile away how his comedy career is going to be used. Of course, any reporter on the campaign trail, you know, they're there because it's fun to write about Al Franken because he's funny. Um, you know, you want the story to be your positions, not the funny joke you made about X, Y, or Z. So when he's out on the campaign trail, you know, he's, he's naturally funny because that's who Al Franken is. But you can see him straining not to make any joke that would be offensive or that might overshadow whatever message he is, uh, you know, trying to deliver that day. All right, Josh Green, senior editor of The Atlantic. Thank you, Josh. Good to be with you. And now let's get some more of today's news headlines, if you included that as a headline. I did. With the BPP's Mark Garrison. This is NPR. Thank you, Mike. Israel and Hezbollah are swapping prisoners along the Lebanon-Israel border. Hezbollah handed over the apparent remains of two kidnapped soldiers. NPR's Ivan Watson is on the border as Hezbollah waits for five prisoners. You have people gathered by uh, a podium here, by a bandstand, uh, with a lot of Hezbollah fighters in uniform and flags here. A lot of pomp and ceremony prepared for the arrival of these five Lebanese prisoners. 
Four of these men were captured during the 2006 war between Israel and Hezbollah. That war was triggered by a cross-border raid by Hezbollah, which captured two Israelis. Their bodies have already been delivered to the Israelis, and now we're waiting for the return of, of five Lebanese prisoners, including a man named Samir Kantar, who has been in an Israeli prison for 30 years since he carried out a cross-border raid into Israel in 1979. NPR's Ivan Watson reporting from the Israel-Lebanon border. Iran's nuclear talks with the European Union will have a surprise guest. For the first time, a top U.S. rep will be in the room. William Burns is America's third highest ranking diplomat. His mere presence marks a big switch in American policy. The goal of the talks is to convince Iran to stop moves that could lead to nuclear weapons. To business news now, where you'll have to pay more for the printed kind. The Wall Street Journal will now cost two bucks on newsstands. That's a 50-cent hike. This follows the $5 billion dollar takeover of the paper's parent company by Rupert Murdoch's News Corp. Average circulation for the journal, just over two million. Belgian brewer InBev will soon own brewer Anheuser-Busch in a $52 billion deal. But the Belgians get more than beer in the deal. The American company also owns theme parks like SeaWorld. Also, Busch Gardens Europe, which ThemeParkInsider.com's Robert Niles says is one of the great ones. That park actually won our award for best theme park in the world. People really love the, the, the setting of that particular park. It's just a, a gorgeous facility, and they've got some really nice thrill rides that they've put in there as well. But analysts think InBev wants to sell the parks, possibly to a foreign buyer. Baseball's all-star game was last last night was sold as a tribute to Yankee Stadium. It was also a nearly five-hour, 15-inning marathon. Here's NPR's Tom Goldman with more. As the game stretched on and on, it seemed as if maybe Major League Baseball didn't want to leave the hallowed stadium behind. It was past 1.30 Eastern time this morning when Michael Young of the Texas Rangers hit a sacrifice fly, scoring Justin Morneau of the Minnesota Twins with the winning run. The 15 innings tied the 1967 contest for longest All-Star game. The winner of the All-Star game gets home field advantage in the World Series. That honor again goes to the American League, which is unbeaten in 12 consecutive executive all-star games. NPR's Tom Goldman reporting, and that's your news for now. Plenty more online at NPR.org. This is NPR. Hey, Mark, do you remember what the Wall Street Journal's slogan was a few years ago? Do you remember what they called it? The Daily Diary of the American Dream? Do I don't know. That? I don't remember that one. So if that's true, the American Dream just got like 50 cents more expensive? Two bucks, Two, you know? Yeah. Oh, my Lord. I always like that, though, because I, I hate like giving giving and getting back change. Because I remember when the Times was a dollar. You just yeah. gave a dollar, and that was it. But yeah. now, then, now you get you get quarters back. And so so the $2 thing, it's, uh, it's you know, big it, on the budget. It's but a whole to easy do. Easy convenience at the newsstand. And kudos to you for covering the InBev merger from the theme park angle. Uh, we try. <laughs> we, we, we don't look like that here at BPP. Now, one news item that you didn't get to in the newscast that I just wanted to touch upon was uh, there's a big youth rally where the Pope's in Australia today. And a guy from the Bronx will be performing. He is a rapping priest. Let's hear some of Father Stan Fortuna. You think that you're the only one that gotta suffer? You think that you're the only one with pain to suffer? Everybody, everybody got a thing they gotta suffer. Bitch, you're poor. Bitch, you're poor. Don't matter, gotta suffer. Let's fade it a little. Keep it up. I'll talk over it as I note. Sounds to me like apparently the Catholic Church thinks the kids want rapping, and they do. Specifically in the Coolio style. This is very gangsta's paradise. 
But then again, find out all the rich food he ate gonna make him die a gout, wiping kids are crying, suffering the pain. Think about that. When was the last time you heard a rapper inveigh against uh, the, the sin of indulgence? Hmm? So, I was thinking about this. Do you want an overly produced rapping priest? Do you really want Timbaland to bust out the jam on a rapping priest? I think not. Father Stan Fortuna playing for throngs of youth in Australia today. The BPP bringing you all the news. And coming up, we will also delve into the world of fan fiction and the BPP jukebox. It's not this. It's other more established songs. This is the Brian Park Project from NPR News. It's going to come to me. It's going to come to you. Everybody got some suffering they got to go through. Welcome back to the Brian Park Project from NPR News, online all the time at npr.org slash Park, where we bring you Katrina and the Wave's greatest hits. Actually, it's just that song. Just that song. Yeah, that would be it. So I feel like I'm in the middle of a montage in a movie where I'm trying on different outfits, and right. Matt Martinez is there cocking his head going, no, I don't think so. Yeah. Like, like a weird headdress in one of them. Like, come on, Matt, what do you think? Like, yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, so that is the most cliched scene in every movie with the most cliched song, but this is just no, the most. No, no, I love that song. We're going to keep the Walking on Sunshine up? That's because you're music. you, Trish. I love that song. I love it. It's not good for, you know, like imagine the scene in The Godfather where he kills all his enemies. Imagine it cut to that song. That'd be awesome. Yeah, I, I kind of like that, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. a good idea. Ian, what do you have? I have a most commented from the Sheboygan Press. No, Ian, we... We do a lot of comedy and humor on the show, but we don't make up the uh, news organizations. We use real news organizations. I, I'm sorry to tell you, you may not be familiar with the crack journalism of the Sheboygan Press, but they're out there. They're doing it, and they're covering... Do they, do they cover Sheboygan like the frost? <laughs> they do indeed. Apparently, uh, Sheboygan has a uh, Hispanic fest, and uh, at said Hispanic fest, an 18-year-old man... Uh, his bad dancing attracted the, it must have been very bad it attracted the attention of authorities they approached him <laughs> the dance police <laughs> and it uh, when they got close to him he smelled like marijuana ah uh, they found drugs ooh, and marijuana a glass pipe and a marijuana cigar, it says here on him. Uh, I think outside of Sheboygan, that's called a blunt, but uh, <laughs> let's not split well, you're hairs. F- you're from Philly. Maybe that's only what yeah. they call it there. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, be careful how you dance. I mean, I have, a, I have a pretty good idea how this guy was dancing, um, having been dragged to a fish show once. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's arms in the air. You want to do kind of a spaghetti thing and uh, and spin. Well, yeah, that's your arms are flying all. It's not safe to do that. You no. have to do a safety dance, really, yeah. if you, if you <laughs> want yeah. to dance like but, that in public. But if you were to do you that, you can then dance you, if you want to. Yeah, you S- leave your S- friends S- behind. S- yeah. Your friends don't dance. This Because this is the most commented, I feel like I should mention, most of the comments are... Uh, talking about, you know, just sort of talking about Hispanic Fest. A lot of the comments, though, are are saying, you know, I have somebody in my family who needs to be arrested. Uh, Uncle Jerry at my wedding. 
criminal <laughs> offense. Wait, wait. So what? Hispanic fest? Like a lot of anti-Hispanic comments? Like only Hispanic people dance weird uh, on marijuana? Yeah. No, it's weird. There's like some debate over whether or not the offender that we've been talking about was Hispanic. Oh, okay. I, yeah. yeah. It's you less about the dancing than you would like wedding. if you were to delve into these comments. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> no. There you go. All right. I have the number one most popular story on the Dallas Morning News. And you know, when we do this most, there are some go-to papers that always have terrible stories, like like the Milwaukee paper, almost always Brett Favre stories. But Dallas Morning News delivers. Maybe crazy stuff goes on in Dallas. Maybe the DMN just knows how to get the good stories. Denton Pizza employee surprised to see dad when wig falls off robber. That's right. <laughs> A guy went to rob the pizza store. Stephanie Martinez... Any relation, Matt? Was behind the counter. Yes, I'm related to all of them, Mike. (laughs) Let me see you dance. (laughs) Well, you know, a lot of times people are related by people with other last names. Yeah. Yeah, and she's Hispanic. Mm. Anyway, uh, don't hit him again. That's my dad, yelled Ms. Martinez as the robber was subdued. Yeah, he went in with the wig. What What a place to try to knock over. Matt? I have one of the most viewed at BBC News. More farmers switching to sewage. Human sewage. Uh, oh, farmers wow. in Britain are just uh, fed up with the price of fertilizer. It's closely linked with the price of oil, and it's shot up sky high over the past year. So they're using a ready supply of treated human sewage from water companies to fertilize their fields. And uh, they hey are. Hey guys, that gives me an idea. Yeah. We need new jobs in a couple of weeks. Uh huh. <laughs> so maybe there's an opportunity here for us. I get paid for something I'm doing anyway. Handy yeah. with a shovel. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. The field poop project. <laughs> um, anyway, they're having complaints. There are a few complaints from uh, people living downwind. A uh, few complaints from people living near his fields. Well, they were, uh, near they the were, fields they were treating it with other kind of fertilizer before. It, they human were, sewage smells but there's, there worse. is a certain smell uh, to, yes. to human feces. Pig is worse. Not I, mine. I've been to a pig farm. <laughs> yes, yeah. I, know that, I know that yours does not stink, Trish. <laughs> all right, that's all I got. Mark. Sir, uh, most shared on? from the Philadelphia Daily News, uh, Mr. Softy, that's a hometown company just across the Whitman Bridge in Runnymede, New Jersey. Uh, soft serve ice cream in the trucks, you know the, everything. You rip them off, they come after you hard. They will file lawsuits. <laughs> they, they, ha- they hire detectives to find out if you, if you, if you try and do a, a ice cream cone mascot. Their mascot is called Conehead. Can't do it. They will sue. Blue right, and they, white colors. They the, the Conehead. The colors yeah. blue and white, they will get you. Not uh, so, not the so phrase is very bad. Best big problem, and uh, again, like 15 suits over the past eight years, they have been said to have never lost. I'm sure they probably settled a lot of these things. But uh-huh. uh, the other thing is that the, the song. You hear the song; it's very annoying, but they they protect it. You don't rip them off, and, and it actually sounds sounds like this. If you don't no, remember. wait, don't play it. I really I don't want to get sued, Mark. Okay. I'll, I'll sing it. Okay. It. All right. Lyrics. All right. We, they did post the lyrics on their website, and the song goes like this. The creamiest, dreamiest, soft ice cream you get from Mr. Softy for a refreshing delight supreme. Look for Mr. Softy, S-O-F-T-E-E, Mr. Softy. There you go. They invented that? That seems like a standard. It is a standard in my household. Yeah. All right. That's the hard news and the soft ice cream, and that is the most. Links to these stories and other soft-serve treats at npr.org slash Park.
I'm going to take it as a given that you've heard of fan fictions where super fans of a book, a movie, a TV show, or in some cases of real people, if newscasters can count as real people, take the characters they love and make them do things their original creators never dreamed of. And yes, that sometimes includes loving on each other. That You might not know that fan fiction, even though it's been available on the internet since the beginning, it still occupies a somewhat murky legal area. Some fan fiction writers report getting cease and desist letters from the writers whose work they use as a jumping off point, or perhaps what the original writers would, would call for whose work they steal. That's where Rebecca Tushnet comes in. She's a professor of law at Georgetown, a writer of fan fiction, and a board member of a web-based organization that's at least partly devoted to helping fan fiction writers fend off claims of copyright infringement. Thanks for coming on, Professor. Thank you for having me. So do you anticipate that there are going to be problems, or are there already problems with fan fiction? Well, uh, there are a lot of misconceptions. There are occasional cease and desist letters, but basically our aim on the legal front is to make clear that the law allows for fair use of copyrighted works, including uh, works of fan fiction, uh, and uh, to reassure fans that they're doing something okay and to reassure copyright owners that their copyrights are not in danger from fans. I would assume just because on the Internet there's so many instances of this, how could it really be illegal? It doesn't seem like something you know, is something that people trade in underground communities. Is there any argument that would say that just posting my own fan fiction on my own website could in fact be illegal if I'm not trying to make a buck off of it? Well, uh, whether you're making a commercial use is only a part of a fair use inquiry. The thing is that copyright law can be fuzzy and hard for a layperson to understand. So there's a lot of myths out there on everybody's side, and copyright owners um, sometimes can make overreaching claims. Right. So, I mean, it just seems to me like if I think of a scenario where Captain Kirk and Captain Picard team up to fight the Borg, Uh, If I think of that, that's legal. Probably if I write it down for myself, that's legal. If I post it on a website, all of a sudden that becomes illegal in anyone's mind. What has happened is that the Internet has made persistent and findable things that are ordinary human creative activities. You're absolutely right. It's the same thing functionally, but because it's on the Internet, we have new audiences, and sometimes those audiences are copyright owners. Are there any show creators or famous writers who have particularly fought with fan fiction people? And then on the other side, which writers have really embraced fan fiction? Well, uh, in terms of embracing, I should give a moment to uh, the Organization for Transformative Works' own Naomi Novik, um, our founder and chair of the board, who's a New York Times bestselling author, um, whose books have been optioned um, by Peter Jackson, Um, and uh, she is a great supporter of uh, fan fiction. And there are various people who have complained about particular works of fan fiction or said that in general they don't allow it. Um, Anne Rice, certainly one of those. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think there's a real growing awareness that not only can you not suppress other people's creativity if you're in the business of expressing your own, uh, but it's, it's not that great an idea in terms of relations with your fans who really want to be engaged and want to support you. Let's delve into the world of fan fiction. There are sub-strains of them. One of them is something called, is it called curtain fic? Um, Some people call it that. It's basically, the idea is uh, stories of domestic life. So if you have the characters from CSI, when we watch them on screen, we spend all this time on their professional lives. But they go home. 
uh, and maybe they have the same domestic issues that we do uh, in contrast to their very exciting public lives. And so there's a little bit of a thrill in writing about the domestic. So curtain fic is short for the characters spend some time picking out curtains, like you or I might. Well, that was surprising. I didn't expect that to happen. But I did expect they'd be writing about the sex lives of the characters. What are some of the specific ways to write about sex lives of characters who aren't even depicted as sexual in their original incarnations? Uh, The same as you talk about, uh, say, a politician's sex life. Um, You expect that other people have sex, and, you know, there are only limited ways to do it, although there are very many creative variations. Uh, in life as in fiction, and people uh, run through them. But with politicians, I almost never say, oh, imagine if Elliot Spitzer got pregnant, and that shows up a lot in fan fiction, men getting pregnant. Um, I wouldn't uh, say it's a lot. It's definitely, you know, it's definitely there. It's a subgenre. It's sort of like, um, you know, alien invasion stories. Right. I mean, Um, it's big enough that they have a name for it, M-Preg. Yeah, Yeah, for male pregnancy. Um, And some people think that this is about... uh, these writers are mostly women, uh, and it's about sort of playing with a different body and sort of putting a male body in the position that women are expected to be in. And when you put it in a male body, suddenly you, a lot of things that seem ordinary uh, seem extraordinary. So it's a way of talking about our experience of our bodies. So why do predominantly women write fan fiction, do you think? Well, there are dissertations on this, so, um, and any generalization I make will be wildly wrong for at least some people. Yes. Uh, I think there are a number of explanations, one of which has to do with the value of community. You find a group of people who are interested in the same thing you are, whether it's Star Wars or Buffy or you know, some other cultural artifact, and you start talking about it, and one of your subjects is what if, and people start telling each other stories. Uh, and that's the thing that women have done uh, a lot, especially in the internet age, but even before that, there were fa- fan communities of women tended to produce more fan fiction. There's also, I think, an idea that a lot of mainstream entertainment is designed for, you know, 18 to 30 year old males, and uh, things that women are more likely to be interested in are more likely to be downplayed. What are we to make of this subgenre of fan fiction that involve people who are on TV but as newscasters or other non-fiction people? Why is that fan fiction and not just making up stories about real people? Uh, well, there are fuzzy boundaries. You know, it slides in, one thing slides into another. So, in fact, there's actually a, a sort of subgenre of Star Trek stories uh, where the characters wake up and they've magically or technologically or somehow been switched into the actor's role. So actual Captain Kirk is treated like William Shatner, and William Shatner finds himself on the deck of the Enterprise and has to deal. (laughs) And that's actually quite funny. Um, So I think once people start to do that, they sometimes decide, well, let me see what else I can play with. These days, uh, a public figure is much more clearly a character. I mean, we have ideas about what these people are really like. But Jon Stewart and Stephen Colbert are playing Jon Stewart and Stephen Colbert. So how does that make them different from William Shatner playing Captain Kirk? They have the same name. Okay. Uh, But there's actually some really interesting stuff going on about the nature of celebrity and what does it mean to be a person or behave in a certain way, a certain way in private, maybe differently in public. 
Right? And fiction is a great way of addressing that. I was wondering, are, is every, even however obscure and canceled over three episodes, but basically every sitcom ever has someone writing fan fiction about it? Or is there an opportunity for me to be the first guy to do McLean Stevenson and Hello Larry fan fiction? I think you could you know, open up a niche. Uh, I have to say there's a yearly uh, organized fiction exchange for rare fandoms called the Yuletide uh, Rare Fandom. Uh, and you sign up and you say, I want Hello Larry. Uh, and someone else out there provides you a story. My editor, Trish, is on fanfiction.net. She finds no Hello Larry. Trish, type in Shasta McNasty. That was a cancel show from like a year and a half ago. <laughs> I don't think she's finding anything either. But I want to thank you, Rebecca Tushnet of uh, Georgetown Law and also, of course, of the Organization for Transformative Work. We can report no Shasta McNasty fan fiction. Thank you, Rebecca. All right, thanks. I'm blowing the whistle on myself. Hello, Larry. That's kind of hack. That's the go-to comedy failed sitcom hack example. And Shasta McNasty is just obscure. But anyway, anyway, enough of that. Because we have a lot of great bands coming through the studios here at the Bryant Park Project. A lot have come over the last nine months. And still more to come. You won't believe who we have in the next couple weeks. And that has given us a chance to fill the BPP jukebox with some great tracks. But we're not chained to our desks here at NPR New York. There's a big city out there. It's called New York. It's full of bars. Those bars are full of bands. BPP video producer Zaina Barakat and director Jacob Gans went to visit one of those bands at one of those bars, the Great Union Hall in Brooklyn. We've got the two of those guys in the studio. Jacob, who'd you go to see and why'd you pick them? Uh we, uh, we went to see a band called Headlights from Champaign, Illinois. Um, they're a really, really nice sort of classic indie pop band in the very mid-90s vein. Um, they remind me a lot of bands like... Uh, um, REO Speedwagon? Not, not REO Speedwagon. Uh, they remind me of uh, sort of like Helium or you know, soft, nice, sing-along-y bands from the, from the, uh, from the mid-90s. Um, uh, and, and it was just nice to get out, get out and get a chance to, to listen to them play in a, in a venue other than... Uh, and then our studio. Zaina, how'd it work? Was the band playing a show and you just stuck your mic there? Actually, we went before the show at Union Hall uh, to their sound check. So uh, the folks at Union Hall have been really good to us and allowed us to, to come in before they played. All right. Well, let us hear a song called Headlights. Oh, sorry, a song called Schoolboys. The band's called Headlights at Union Hall in Brooklyn. Who has the quarter? I've got it. All right. Let's throw it in the jukebox, see what happens.
Dana, why go to Union Hall? What's wrong with our little studio here? It is tiny. I don't know if you have seen the videos on our website, but we went to Union Hall. First of all, it's gorgeous. It looks like a 1920s hotel. And uh, go check it out on our website. Check out the video and, uh, yeah, take a look at it. All right. BPB director Jacob Gans, video producer Zaina Barakat, thank you guys. And next on the BPP, computers beating... No, 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 no. Well, yeah, okay. Computers beat humans at poker. That's what we're talking about next. Dogs and cats will also be living together on the Brian Park Project from NPR News. Welcome back to the Brian Park Project from NPR News. We are on Digital FM, Sirius Satellite Radio, and online at npr.org slash Park. I'm Mike Pesca. Coming up, move over Deep Blue. There's a new game-playing computer in town, and this one beat a real live human at a quintessentially human game. But first, let's get the latest news headlines from the BPP's Mark Garrison. This is NPR. Thank you, Mike. Federal Reserve Chair Ben Bernanke faces Congress again today. Yesterday, he told the Senate the economy is expanding slowly but faces big challenges. NPR's Paul Brown has more. Bernanke says rising energy prices, flat wages, and the bursting of the housing market bubble are creating inflationary pressure alongside reduced buying power. Yesterday, he said if higher prices start to put upward pressure on wages, the Fed would have to aggressively fight inflation. That would mean raising interest rates. Economist Gary Clayton of Northern Kentucky University says the Fed has few good choices. If the Fed tries to fight inflation by restricting the growth of the money supply, it drives up interest rates, that drives up prices. So uh, this is going to be a very difficult period for the Fed. Clayton says with no apparent restraint on energy prices just yet, the country may simply have to ride out a period of inflation as an expansion cycle in the economy ends. We had a mic problem. Sorry about that. That's NPR's Paul Brown reporting. E. coli-tainted beef has now been found in five states. The meat came from Nebraska Beef Limited, which sent it to Kroger. Kroger recalled more than 5 million pounds last month. More than 40 people have gotten sick, some seriously. The Centers for Disease Control has details on its website. Congress has overridden a presidential veto of a health bill. NPR's Julie Rovner has more. After failing to outflank the president on the Children's Health Insurance Program, Democrats in Congress played the Medicare bill just right. Here's how Senate Finance Committee Chairman Max Baucus put it on the Senate floor just before the vote. Will doctors' doors stay open to older Americans and to the children of our fighting men and women? Our votes tonight will make that difference. Medicare's physician fees also determine the payments for the TRICARE program that serves 9 million members of the military and their families. That forced Republicans to choose between doctors and patients and the insurance companies whose payments would be trimmed to pay for the bill. In the end, enough Republicans chose the former to produce lopsided majorities in both the House and Senate. NPR's Julie Rovner reporting, and that is your news for now. Plenty more online at npr.org. This is NPR. You might think that a computer would be naturally great at poker. After all, odds are about numbers, and shouldn't knowing when to hold them and knowing when to fold them be easily reduced to a series of ones and zeros? But actually, any decent poker pro will tell you that numbers are but a small part of the game. The important things are being able to read the opponent and perhaps to use your own ability to bluff. 
which makes it all the more remarkable that Polaris 2, a computer, just beat a lineup of professional players. At a poker convention in Las Vegas last week, the program bested a team of six at Limit Texas Hold'em. It's the first time poker pros have fallen in a man-versus-machine match. Here to tell us about the showdown is programming developer Michael Bowling. He's an associate professor at the University of Alberta's Department of Computer Science, and he heads its computer poker research group. Is that for real, Michael? Yes, it is. What do you do in that group besides just an excuse for you guys to play poker all day? Uh, the group is actually focused on artificial intelligence. So mm-hmm. we're interested in developing techniques for uh, advancing the state of the art in AI. And we're using poker as a test bed to explore our ideas. Now, I found that in, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a poker player, so I thought this was amazing. But when I tried to explain it to people, they had the attitude, well, why wouldn't a p- computer be good at poker? So before you tell me how good your computer is, explain for someone who's not a big player why a computer wouldn't naturally dominate against pros. The main reason is because it's not good enough to just know whether uh, you have the best of the cards or the worst of the cards. So sure, a computer can calculate exactly what its probability of winning against, say, a random hand by the opponent. But once some betting has occurred, then now your opponent doesn't have a random hand. So if they've placed a bet at you, that means they actually are saying, I have a strong hand. And so you actually need to... uh, take that into account. But they might also be bluffing, so you need to take that into account too. And of course, this has to be part of your game. If you're not actually putting in some bluffs or hiding your strong hands, then uh, you're opening yourself up to allowing your your opponent to to be able to exploit that against you. Right. And in fact, every good pro knows the odds. I mean, every every halfway decent player should know the odds or else they're going to lose. Right. And some people know it to more degree than others. I mean, certainly, uh, you know, not that everyone's sitting at the table calculating them. Yeah, I always know the odds and I lose a lot of the time. In (laughs) fact, I'm going to say most of the time, but don't tell my wife. Okay, so here's the question. To program this computer, do you just run thousands and thousands of simulation games uh, or is it more than that? Uh, it's almost exactly that and a little bit more. Okay, what's so, the more? Most of the foundation for Polaris is based on game theory. So the idea of uh, game theory is to say, let's try to find a strategy that, no matter how the opponent plays, doesn't lose too much money. So the, in poker, with a two-player game, there is some strategy that regardless of how the opponent plays, you are guaranteed not to lose money if the match is long enough to overcome any of the randomness in the game. Okay, so that's a two-player game, but what about with six people at the table, like in this uh, game that Polaris won? So Polaris, uh, this match uh, was not actually a six-player game. It oh. was a series of two-player matches. Oh, I see. So uh, that actual problem of dealing with more than two players at the table is still actually hard for computers to handle. And so the way it actually works uh, in this particular competition was we had a series of heads-up matches. Each match only consisted of two players actually just playing with two hands being dealt and playing out the cards. Now, is there a good strategy for playing a computer? If it were me and I heard the computer had just beaten five other really top pros, I would say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to be so random. I'm going to get off my game and... And every, you know, sixth hand or something, I'll just bluff just to just to see if I could throw the computer. Would that work? Probably not. If you're just going to play random in the sense of I'm just going to take every so often take a random action, that yeah. means you're probably just taking a bad poker action, and that can't possibly help you. Who are the pros that you beat, and why do they want to play a computer? It doesn't seem like a lot's in it for them. So uh, the pros were all uh, coaches or contributors for StocksPoker.com, which is a poker training website. So part of it was, uh, I think, a promotional uh, move for them. But a lot of them, I think, uh, they're not really worried. The computer's not going to, uh, is not threatening their 
their market for how they make money. But at the same time, they're interested in just how far can a computer get and can they learn something from it and can they improve their game by playing it. And I think that was one of the most stunning, uh, basically, responses of the players is that all of them were just really excited by the chance to play against a really, really uh, strong player where there's no money on the line. Does the computer learn from his individual opponent? In other words, if I try a big move the first hand I play against the computer, might that be better strategy for me than playing 50 hands and letting the computer get a read on me? Possibly. So the computer this year, one of the changes that we made from last year was to add a a more sophisticated learning component. And that will actually watch how the opponent's playing and choose a style of its own play. Uh, Some are more aggressive, some are more passive. And so one thing that you might be able to do to throw players off would be to try to switch up your play as you're playing. It's tricky, though, because you need to be playing good poker all along the way. If switching your strategy causes you to move to a poker strategy you're maybe not as familiar with, the loss you take for playing a poorer game of poker might be more than just what you gain by switching your strategy. I see. Mix, you know, mixing it up is good unless the mix that you choose to undertake is some terrible moves with your cards going, well, it's limits, so you can't go all in, but making stupid That's right. bets based on bad cards. That's right. And most poker players have a particular style they're most comfortable with. And I think for the most part, when they tried to adopt a different style, even the expert poker players took a hit in the quality of play that they were playing. If I was a human and I wanted to take a lesson from Polaris, what should I do? Not beating Polaris, but I want to beat other players. So uh, we had, after we had done, this is the second of man-machine competition that we actually ran. So we ran one last year and was narrowly defeated. And afterwards, we put uh, the program up on uh, it's on a Play Money website that's available through uh, Poker Academy's uh, Poker Academy. And you could actually go online and play against the program. And a number of people who were on the website uh, had actually declared that this was the most uh, useful thing that they'd ever done to improve their game hmm. at limit. Here's a chance to spar with some of the best in the world, and you don't have to risk any money to do it. Besides poker, what are the applications of this artificial intelligence technology? The big thing about poker is the uncertainty involved, that you're uncertain about of what cards your opponent has, you're uncertain about uh, what future cards are going to come up, you're uncertain what style of play your opponent's using. And so handling that uncertainty is what makes the AI problem challenging. And it's actually uncertainty that appears in many real-life problems. Uh, So we've already looked at a few uh, applications, mainly within economic decision-making, where it's obvious that you have a number of parties that are are playing what really looks like a poker game, like if you're in an auction scenario where uh, one player might be auctioning off a good, you don't really know how much he values it at, you don't really know if there'll be future goods of this auction up for sale, so how should you actually make your bid so as to maximize your money? And is there any truth to the rumor that Polaris blew all his winnings trying to impress a parking meter outside the casino? <laughs> I'm not sure it was a parking meter. No? No, I think it might have been a cash register. But... When, it, when an attractive cocktail waitress came over and she was entering the order in one of those handheld computers, the player was ogling the waitress and Polaris was ogling the computer? Yes? That might be the key to distracting players <laughs> and, and making a big bet right at that moment. Yeah. Let's just hope Polaris doesn't uh, pull a knife on someone who, who he thinks is cheating. Michael Bowling is the head of the Computer Poker Research Group at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Mike.
The highways of America are dotted with crosses, flowers, pictures, testimonials to men, women, and children who've died in car crashes while on the road. Among urban bicycle riders, a similar tradition has arisen. One one designed to remember, but also to kind of point a finger to maybe haunt people. These things are called ghost bikes. Bicycles painted all white, placed where bikers have been killed, most of them hit by cars. They're in cities all around the world. Our web editor, Laura Conaway, bikes to our midtown Manhattan offices from Brooklyn just about every day. She is here with the story of one particular ghost bike. Hey, Laura. How are you doing, Mike? I'm well. Tell us about this ghost bike. It's one that I see every morning on my ride into work. It's at the corner of 6th Avenue and 36th Street. Is this a really dangerous corner for some reason? Well, it's not so much the corner as the, the avenue itself. 6th Avenue is four lanes of traffic, plus two for parking, and then there's this little bike lane. It's not even an arm's width across. And back in December, a guy named David Smith was killed there. He got doored out of the lane, it's every cyclist's nightmare, by an illegally parked car, and then he got run over by a truck. I mean, doored means... He, Someone just opened the door. And, and he either goes flying or has to swerve to avoid Exactly, it. and yeah. he was actually knocked, physically knocked into the into the traffic mm-hmm. lane and hit by a truck. He was 65, and it so happens that he was gay. He'd had the same partner for 36 years. I'd been wondering whether the ghost bike I see every morning was for him. And then a few weeks ago, right after Gay Pride, I saw that someone had decorated it with flowers and this rainbow flag. So I blogged about it, and not long after, the person who decorated it wrote in to say that someone had completely stripped the bike. His name's Larry Bays, and he was not happy. The sign that states when he died, when he was killed, etc., was on on the post as well as on, you know, zip-tied on. and Right onto the frame. Right onto the frame, and we had flowers, and we had, you know, fake flowers, and uh, rainbow flag, which is on here, it, it was gone. Everything was gone. So I checked the trash, and it was all in the trash. Now, Larry didn't know David Smith, but it just happens that he lives nearby, and he's also gay, and he's an AIDS widower, so he understands loss. Does he bike? Is he that- bikes. He bikes every day. He's a gardener in Central Park, and he bikes up there. And Larry volunteered to take care of this bike. And he says that the vandalism was probably not a gay thing because people have been damaging this bike for a long time. They've been kicking in the tires. They've taken off the nameplate. And, I, I, you know, I'm trying to understand it. Is the bike um, obstructing street traffic? Why would they target this bike? It's not really clear. You know, people, this bike is not in anybody's way. People have complained about that with other ghost bikes. Sometimes in other cities, there's a place in Boston where one has been blocking a bus stop. Sometimes they end up blocking manholes. This one is just tucked away. Mm -hmm. Uh, It does make you wonder how long memorials like the ghost bike can last in the middle of big cities. And I asked Larry about that. You know, when you see old graveyards, they're covered over. And it's, it's not imaginable, really, for the people who are burying a new person that the graveyard would ever be covered over or that the roadside cross where the car went off the road would ever just fade away. And yet, they do. There may be a time when, yeah, this bike is, doesn't need to be here anymore. I mean, yeah, that's, that's a fact. I mean, things... Things evolve, like you said, and that can be good. And maybe, you know, maybe they'll be, this will be wider and we'll have a, a really good bike path here and this won't have to be here, you know. And maybe, you know, people will be, you know, won't get killed on bikes anymore. And that'd be good. You know, and then, then maybe we don't need this symbol. 
I want to ask you about that. You mentioned the bike paths about an arm's length. Do people just, the guys who are in charge of putting down a bike path, do they kind of just say, oh, let's see how much room we have and then design it that way? Or are there standards for what constitutes a good bike path? Well, standards are changing. In New York City, one of the things that's happened is they've begun building wider bike lanes and also separated bike lanes where they've they've gone and they've looked at examples in other cities like Amsterdam and Copenhagen. And what they started doing is they, instead of placing the bike lane between the sidewalk and the cars, they now flip the order so that it's sidewalk, bike lane, cars. And they're using the cars or on Broadway, New Lane uses a little sort of pedestrian plaza to separate cyclists from the main flow of traffic. And that makes sense. It's, because it's, if, you open, if the door opens that way, he doesn't go into an oncoming car. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I do ride on this old antiquated lane on 6th Avenue still, which is a lousy old lane, and it's just too small for the level of traffic there. I wouldn't ride on that street if I had a choice and if it weren't so early in the morning and there's little traffic. But most of my ride in New York City is on quite wide buffered bike lanes now, thanks to people laying them down. All right. Laura Conaway edits our website. You can find more of her conversation with Larry Bays along with photos of the ghost bike and people commenting about it on npr.org slash Park. Thank you, Laura. Thank you. And while we're on subjects of uh, interaction with people on the website, Matt Martinez is here with a little Most of Ramble News. Yeah, a little Most of Ramble News. We uh, were, were, well, not inundated. A couple people wrote, why aren't you doing the Ramble? Why aren't you doing the Ramble? Where's the Ramble? Is the Ramble ever going to be done again? And <laughs> and the thing is, is that we decided uh, over many beers that we would just do the most because it involves more of the staff and we have very, very little time left. But because there was a mini outcry on the blog, uh, we are going to bring back the ramble. The ramble will be back tomorrow and and the most in the same show. Yeah, it's a ramble and the most in the same segment in the same show. It's going to be it's going to be mind blowing. We're like one of those community banks where we're not so big that the customer doesn't matter to us. A yes. couple people write in. They say, where is the, your ramble? We'll say, I'll see what I could do. The chairman of the organization starts walking the hall. Says, you, sir, come up with a ramble. Exactly. And, and, and you know. I have about 30 seconds left, but the one-hour thing, going yeah. to one hour, it was our choice. You know, a lot of people are on the blog. They're like, NPR cut you down to one hour, two, and cancel due? It's like, no, that was our choice. It's a process of moving on and um, and, and getting through this. So right. so that's, that's pretty much the best explanation I can give all the folks out there. And that is it for this hour or this program of the BPP. I am Mike Pesca. This is the Brian Park Project from NPR News.